well. Uh, this is the, the morning when we come to the end of the greatest story ever told. Uh, if you look at the, uh, the picture there on your screen, you'll see that we started with um, we started with creation, and we saw that how God made a world that was perfect and everything in it was perfect and good. And then shortly after that, that human beings fell into sin. They listened to the voice of the serpent when he said, "Did God really say?" And they went, "No, I don't think so. I think I think I think I know better." And they fell into sin. And then after that, uh, we saw how God... Go ahead and put that big picture back up on. Um, <laughs> so I can walk through. Uh, the, um, the, after that, we saw that humans spread across the earth. And, um, and they became increasingly wicked. And God destroyed them all in a flood uh, to make a new world again. He saved Noah and his family. And then after Noah, there came all of the peoples of the world and the nations. And God called one particular fellow out of all the nations of the world, a man named Abraham, the Aramean, uh, out of Ur of the Chaldees. And he called him and told him, made him a promise. He said that it will be uh, that I will make you a great nation and I will give you a great name and I will give you a land of your own and, I, and kings will come from you, and you will have a great promise, and through you will come the blessing to all nations that I promised way back in the beginning when humans fell into sin that there would be a deliverer. That deliverer, Abram, will come through you. And, and it took Abram a while to have his first boy. Uh, he was 100 years old when the child of promise came. His wife was 90. Uh, so some of you who are older, there's still hope. Um, but uh, but he had uh, he had his first his his uh, his child of promise when he was a hundred years old. His wife was ninety, and his name was Isaac. And Isaac had two sons, one of which was named Jacob. Jacob had twelve sons. They were a hot mess. Uh, it was a, it was really a soap opera among those sons. All, all of the older ten hated their their uh, son number eleven tried to kill him. Instead of killing him, they decided, I know what we'll do. We'll sell him into slavery. And so they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And from there, he rose from slave to prime minister of the whole nation. And God used his slavery to raise him to a position where he could save his whole family from famine and death. And God protected them in the land of Egypt. But after Joseph and all of his family died, their descendants were made slaves in Egypt until the day 430 years later to the very day when God took them out through Moses. And as they passed through the waters of the Red Sea and came to the Mount Sinai, God gave them the law, a way to be in relationship with Him. And He led them through the wilderness wandering and then through Joshua, Moses', Moses assistant, He led them into the land of promise. And then came the period of time of the judges where uh, in those days there was no king and everybody did whatever was right in their own eyes and that turned out to be just as disastrous as you would think. Until the day that God raised up prophets and kings to lead the nation. Uh, kings to lead it from a governmental perspective. Prophets to call people back to obedience to the law. 
But that didn't go well either. The people were disobedient. And they rebelled against God. They went into exile from the land. And then God brought some of them back and they rebuilt the land. Until the day, as they were still living, in a sense, in exile, when Jesus came. Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. He is the center and the hero of the whole story. Uh, after Jesus was resurrected and ascended into heaven, He sent the Spirit. And we read in the book of Acts how God sent forth His church to be the Jesus-sent, Spirit-filled, disciple-making community of God's people that transcends cultural divisions and evangelizes the world and endures suffering along the way. And then we looked last week at the church and how God is active right now in the church to bring people to maturity in Christ and to uh, carry out His mission in the world even today. And so a big chunk of the New Testament is these letters that tell you how to follow Jesus in the here and now. And now we come to the end of the story to the new creation. And that's the end of the story. It's the end of your Bible. There's lots of places that talk about the very end of everything, um, but where the story ends is mostly told in the book of Revelation, the last book in your Bible. So I encourage you to make your way there. In a couple of minutes, we're going to read the description of the end of all things, or at least a portion of the description uh, from Revelation chapter 21. But as you make your way there, let me just tell you this quick story. Uh, one of the things I love about being a pastor is that people often stop by the office and just check in, knock on the door, see if I'm there, and if I if I am, they come in and sit down and, and we chat. And I had someone sit down, uh, one of my friends from here at CBC stopped by with a theological question, and he asked me, Pastor, what makes you long for Jesus to come back? I think my answer may have been more words than this. If you know me, it probably was. Um, but the short version is, well, I'm getting older, I'm getting tired, and I watch the news. My body does not look or work the way it did when I was 20, right? I don't sleep as well as I used to. And the news of the day when I watch it, which is not often but I read a lot. When I get the news of the day, it is constantly galling to my soul. You just get tired. I want to be like Shakespeare and say, a pox on all your houses, right? Um, this, is, this is ridiculous, the stuff that happens in our world and how evil a lot of it has become. And all that together, when you add it all up, uh, reminds me that I am not anything like I am supposed to be, and neither is this whole world. Nothing in this world works and looks the way it is supposed to. And praise God, the way things are right now is not the way they are, will always be. Amen? The world in its present form is passing away, and things will not always be like this. In fact, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about new creation. And so at the beginning of our time in the Word, I want to remind all of us of that reality. And then I want to give you a small glimpse of how Jesus will one day make the world to be. So 
If you've got your Bible, I invite you to stand with me if you're able and follow along as I read. This is the first eight verses of Revelation chapter 21. I love this. I read part of this at every funeral I've ever done because it is such a great reminder of the truth of God's Word and His promise being fulfilled. This is what the Word of God says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire, and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I pray that we would hear Your voice this morning. Father, I want to proclaim Your Word and be faithful to do it. Father, I pray that it would not just be my words, that Your Word would sing forth from my mouth, and that the Spirit of God be at work in the souls of all these your people. And you have gathered here not to listen to me, but to worship you. And Father, may we humble ourselves before your face and submit ourselves to what we hear today and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, these verses we just looked at together are what the world will look like one day. It's one part of the very end of the story. But the book of Revelation, believe it or not, does not begin that way. I'm going to walk you through the whole book in about 20 minutes. (laughs) Okay? 25 minutes. Uh, If you want a longer version of this, uh, I actually preached 36 messages on the book of Revelation in 2019 and 2020. You can listen to them all. They're on the sermon archive. Okay? But uh, in the next 20... So, 25 or so minutes, uh, here's how the story unfolds. Uh, The story begins in Revelation with the Apostle John seeing a vision of the resurrected Jesus enthroned in heaven. And in his vision, Jesus speaks to John and dictates to him brief letters to each of the seven churches that were then in existence in western Turkey. Uh, It wasn't called Turkey then, it was called Asia Minor. But it's today, western Turkey... Um, these letters have been variously interpreted throughout church history, but I think the reason they're given to us is that these seven historic churches had real challenges 
that speak to some of the same challenges facing the church around the world today. Some churches, like the church in Ephesus, are doctrinally solid but have lost their love for Jesus. Some are rich but riddled with immorality. Some are poor and persecuted. Some are compromised in their teaching while some are oppressed and powerless and others are dying or dead. And so these letters still speak to us today. And they're important because we are not yet to the end of the story. And we need to respond to the truth in them because the church today, with all of the challenges that it faces, all of the even sins that it is subject to, is God's project. The church is not some optional extra for Christians. This is God's plan A. That His people be assembled into churches. Despite the sin, despite the flaws that are there, the church is the most important organism on the planet. Notice I did not say organization. It is a living entity, a living thing made up of people. And God is using it to save people for Himself. And so Revelation begins with the churches and all of their problems, which both reminds us that these problems aren't new, and also that God is at work through all kinds of that to bring salvation to all kinds of people before the end comes. In fact, one of the things that the Bible emphasizes is that the primary reason why Jesus hasn't brought judgment to the wicked world and final salvation for His people yet is because Jesus is still using us with all of our struggles, all of our imperfections, all of our flaws, all of our sins, to get the gospel to that wicked world before judgment falls. Amen? So that's how Revelation begins. But one day Jesus will judge the world. After, after the portion of the church is done, then Jesus will judge the world. And if you keep reading Revelation, that's what you see. After chapter 3, the church isn't mentioned as being present anywhere on the earth. And that's because when the church finishes fulfilling its purpose that Jesus has for it, He will take us to glory in an event that's called the rapture of the church. And He will bring salvation to Israel then and use them to finish His work of reaching every tribe and nation and tongue and people. While that's happening... God will be bringing judgment on this wicked world. In fact, a whole chunk uh, of Revelation reads like the anti-Genesis. You know, like in Genesis you read how God made these things and how they were perfect and beautiful. Well, in Revelation uh, chapter 4 through uh, chapter 18, you read how God is unmaking a lot of things around the world. And you get these... Uh, instead of having a world that is suitable for humans, God is progressively through these judgments making it unsuitable for us to live on it. And so God unleashes in these uh, 15 chapters seven sets. I mean, three sets of seven judgments that get increasingly horrible. So 21 total judgments in 15 chapters. But He's also active at that same time, running along the same you know, it's like if judgment is one track of the train, God's salvation is the other. And He is bringing salvation through all of that judgment to all of the people who reject Satan's counterfeits and believe in Jesus 
before the end. And what Revelation chapter 4 through 18 shows us is that at the end, these are inseparable things. God's worst earthly judgments are precisely what He is using to bring millions of people to faith in Christ. Even as Satan and his minions work overtime to delude and to deceive people into following his counterfeit Messiah, the Antichrist, God is at work to cause people to follow the real Christ, the real Messiah of the world. And so God will hold nothing back from his judgments so that as many people as possible find salvation. And don't miss this reality. Jesus will judge the wicked on this earth. One of the things that, that sometimes people ask as you share the gospel with them is this. They say, well, if God is up there and He is all-powerful and He is good and He is just, then how come there's so much evil in the world? How come God doesn't judge evil? And my response to that is this. You're asking a, a very important question. But that is not the right one. The question that the Bible is concerned with is why doesn't God judge evil yet? Because it is coming. And God will hold nothing back from His judgment on evil. And He will bring justice to every wicked person on this planet who does not repent put their trust in Jesus. Okay? You also see in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus will marry His bride. Uh, all those who put their trust in Christ from all times and all places who have joined the Lord in heaven will be His bride. And they will celebrate their relationship with Him at the marriage supper of the Lamb that's described in Revelation 19. Now, a lot of people are curious. Well, when does that happen? Well, this is my theory. And then based on my reading of Scripture, uh, you know, a Jewish wedding was traditionally a seven-day event. As it happens, God's judgments and revelation unfold over seven years. And so when does the marriage supper of the Lamb happen? With us in heaven over that seven-year period we are enjoying this feast with the Lord. Okay, I've never been to a seven-year feast, but it'll be a good time, <laughs> right? Um, I typically have to go sleep it off after Thanksgiving, right? But uh, we're going to have a seven-year feast. Um, and I could make—I could be wrong about that. It makes sense to me logically and theologically, but more important than the specific timing of this is the reality of it. Uh, I don't know how you think really about your relationship with Jesus, but what the Bible presents as truth is that the very best relationship that we have on this earth, the very best relationship we have is marriage. And that, according to your Bible, is just a shadow and a picture of Jesus' love for us. Okay? I hope if you are married that you love your mate and you would happily do this again. Um, but because that is the intention behind marriage that God has for it, that you would 
be so blessed in this relationship that you would that it would point you to him and his love for you. Right? But even if it doesn't, that's still the intention behind marriage. That this is a reality that at its very best you go, oh my gosh, I can't believe God gave me this person. And this is so wonderful that I get to spend the rest of my life with a person that I love more than anyone else in the world and who loves me more than anything else in the world. Okay? But by comparison... Okay, by comparison, this is like anybody else. When I was a kid, there was a, a lady that was friends with my mother that would get these carob chocolates. You know what I'm talking about? Is this a thing that people are familiar with? Carob is like the worst tasting chocolate substitute in the world, right? And you go, who thought this was a good idea? Like, like if you want chocolate, just eat that, right? I mean, even bad chocolate from the drugstore is better than this. This is horrible, right? And, and I was just fascinated by that phenomenon, right? But if human marriage is at its very best is like that, it is carob chocolate, okay? It is, it, is not, it is a pale imitation of what they sell at the Godiva store, okay? Uh, and this is so much better. Or maybe you're not into maybe you're not into food, okay? But human marriage is a tricycle compared to this S-class Mercedes over here, okay? This is a this is a far far better reality that we are going to experience with Jesus. That His love for you is higher and better and more amazing than anything else, and He uses marriage as a way of getting at that for us, so that we can get it down on the shelf, that we can reach it. He's like, look, the very best of the relationships you will ever experience in your life is a shadow compared to the reality of my love for you. And so we have this feast to remind us, hey, Jesus loves you with an everlasting love. Um, all right, we'll have this, this party that is far better than anything we can imagine. Jesus will marry his bride. At the end of that, Jesus will return to establish his kingdom. Now, when Jesus returns, it will not be gentle Jesus, meek and mild. In fact, I encourage you to read Revelation 19 in its entirety because what you will see there is a rider on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and a name written on his leg that only he knows and he is called Faithful and True. And the sword he uses to slay the wicked people of the world. If your vision of Jesus is like this kind of, you know, long haired, kind of, you know, wimpy guy holding a lamb, okay, you'll need an upgrade on that image. Because Jesus is a real warrior. And the fact that he was crucified did not make him less of a warrior. He is withholding from, from his use at that moment all of his strength and power. But it will be unleashed at his return. And Jesus will return. He will slay the wicked. He will capture Satan and his minions. He will cast Satan into the abyss, uh, also known as the bottomless pit, for a thousand years. He will put into hell 
both the Antichrist, Satan's fake Messiah, and the person that is called in Revelation the false prophet. Uh, he functions as kind of fake John the Baptist, as the forerunner and proclaimer of Satan's fake Messiah. And their followers, all of them, all the people who got that mark on them, are slain by a word from Jesus' mouth. And after that, Jesus establishes His kingdom at Jerusalem. And those who loved and followed Him reign with Him on this earth for a thousand years. This is, by the way, this is the fulfillment and literal on this earth uh, timing. Uh, in this time, space, mass universe, this world, Jesus will reign from, from Jerusalem on this planet. And the reason He will do so is because God has made promises to Israel that a son of David would rule. And He's going to do so for a thousand years in, in keeping that promise. But it will be a unique time in the world when God Himself is visibly present and reigning, but where people who were not raised to life and taken to heaven with us at the rapture uh, will still be being born on the earth. And it'll still be possible for them to sin, but because Jesus is reigning on the earth, a lot of the corruption of the world will be reversed. And so even unsaved people will see a visible demonstration for a thousand years of how real God is and how much better life is when we obey Him. But despite that, not everybody will. In fact, after Jesus reigns for a thousand years, He will release Satan from the abyss and He will allow Him to roam free again for a short time. And many people, despite seeing the goodness of Jesus and His kingdom, will freely choose to follow Satan instead and rebel against Jesus one last time. Now, the next thing that's going to happen is final judgment. But you may wonder why this story seems very complicated. Like, why, why not just come back uh, deal with all the wicked people, save all the people who follow Jesus, and just take us all to heaven and have that be it. Let me explain just briefly why that is. Okay. Suppose you're standing at the judgment and you were to say, well, you know, I, I know I'm a sinner, but like if you had just made people perfect and put us in a perfect environment, you know, then we would have obeyed you. How will Jesus answer that question? I did that. Well, what if you just gave us a conscience? You know, I mean, we're fallen. So, what if you just gave us a conscience and and put us in a you know in a in a place where we were just called to obey you by having you know your law put in our put put in our minds and in our hearts so that we knew right from wrong? And I will say I did that, and it led to the flood because it was such a disaster. He said, "Well, what if?" What if you had a, a special people on the earth who showed us what it was like to follow God and you gave them uh, you know, like all of your commands and everything written down so everybody could read them and they could look at the example of these people and follow them and, and know what to do? How will God answer? Well, I did that. Well, what if you yourself would come down and live among us and experience life like we do. Because, I mean, you really don't know what it's like. It's tough down here. And this world is messed up. And there's lots of temptations. I mean, we surely would have obeyed if we had known that you were here and that, 
and that you knew what it was like and we would follow you then. God will then say, I did that too. Well, you know, it was really hard for us as sinners to follow your law. And we, I mean, we have corrupted hearts. So what if you gave us your Holy Spirit to himself take up residence within us that we might obey? You can see where this is going, right? I did that too. Well, what if you yourself would just come and reign on earth? And we could see you anytime we wanted. We could see you. We could see how much better it was to live life following you. We could even see some of your glorified followers and it would be amazing. And we would know that what the truth was. And if you'd shut up Satan during that time, surely we would all embrace faith, right? And yet, that didn't work either, right? And what God is doing, and in other words, is demonstrating through all of human history that you must yield your heart to Him. You must be born again, as Jesus said to Nicodemus. And that apart from that, you will choose rebellion every single time in every single circumstance. Amen? And so... No one standing at the judgment will have any excuse for why they rebelled against God. Because Jesus has done it every which way He can to make it obvious that this is the way. Walk in it. But having done all that, Jesus does bring final judgment. And when that rebellion, that final rebellion comes, Jesus immediately crushes it. And Revelation 27 to 15 speaks of the final judgment as all of the people who are dead standing before Jesus as he sits in judgment on a great white throne. Believers who have died since the first resurrection that begins the kingdom will be raised to life at that moment. Along with them will be raised all the sinful dead from all times and all places, and the book of records will be opened. And everyone present at this judgment will be evaluated according to their deeds. And then a search will be made. Believers in Christ will find that their names are written in the book of life because of their faith in Jesus. And so their evaluation of their deeds are for rewards that they will then receive and enjoy for all eternity. But those who rejected Christ when the search in the book of life is made will find that their name is not theirs. And their deeds will then be evaluated for what degree of God's justice and judgment they will receive for all eternity, and they will then be cast into the lake of fire forever. Satan and all those whose names are not found in the book of life will be cast into hell forever and ever. Every speck of sin and evil and the corruption of the world that it brought will be consumed eternally in the fire of God's judgment. And everyone who wanted all their lives to have nothing to do with God, His rule, His glory, or His presence will be granted the terrible justice of having their own desires fulfilled for all eternity. 
because ultimately, as the writer C.S. Lewis said, there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who say to God, Your will be done. And those to whom God says at the end, Your will be done. And you get the terrible majesty of your choices. Ratified for all eternity. Either you yield your heart to Jesus and put your trust in Him and escape the judgment and enjoy instead the everlasting presence of the One who loves you more than anything else in the world. Or you stiff arm the Lord. You say, I want to do things my own way. I want to walk according to my own wisdom and I want nothing to do with you. And God says very well, you will have nothing to do with Me. But you get the majesty of your choices. And in fact, if you can keep reading, you'll find that God makes such a complete end of sin and evil and the corruption of the world that He causes this one to disappear entirely. And He makes a new one in which every trace of sin and evil and its corruption disappears. Peter writes this way about it in Second uh, Peter chapter 3. He says, the elements will melt with intense heat and the heavens and the earth will disappear with a roar. The earth and all of its works will be burned up. It'll be gone. And then it says, and then I saw. This is the passage we read at the beginning. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. you see the Lord sitting on His throne declaring that death is dead. And so is mourning and crying and pain. There's no more curse. We live on a cursed planet. I don't know if you know that, but we do. The reason everything is frustrating and broken is because we live on a cursed planet. But there will no longer be a curse. Because Christ has overcome all these things by His love for us in the cross and in His resurrection and through His rule and justice and recreation of the world, there will not be one thing in the new heaven and the new earth at the end that will remain of this old tired world. And we will get the biggest and best gift that there is ever, which is that we will live forever in the new heaven and the new earth alongside Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus will be with us all the time. It will be better than the garden. Jesus doesn't simply walk there in the cool of the day like God did in the garden. Uh, we will always be with Jesus. And the tree of life will be there freely accessible. And it's not just one tree in the middle. It's a massive tree that straddles the river of the water of life and it yields 12 different kinds of fruit every month and its leaves heal us from all kinds of things. There's no need for the sun or the moon because Jesus will light the place with His glory and there won't ever be night or darkness. We will bear His name on our foreheads and we will reign eternally in glory alongside the King of creation. So that's how the story ends. Jesus is revealed as the conquering King who forever 
defeats sin, death, hell, and evil, and He wipes it completely from the world and takes us home to be with Him in glory forever. But there's one final thing you need to know about the story, and it's this. This story is not here for our information merely. It is there for the reason that every part of the Scripture is there, which is for our transformation. And the Bible consistently emphasizes that point, that whenever it speaks about these future events, it demands of us an answer to this pointed question. In light of these things, what sort of people ought we to be? I want to suggest three important answers to this vital question as we close, as we close out the last message of this series. And it's, it's these answers. Number one, we ought to be loving people. That might seem like an incongruous answer to this, but here's the reality. The more I follow Jesus, the more I become convinced that loving Jesus is the key to the spiritual life. The more I love Jesus, the more I become like Him. The more I become like Him, the more I love Him, and the more amazed I am by the fact that He loves me of all people. Have you ever encountered a more shocking thing than that the Lord of the universe loves you? with all of your imperfections, all of your flaws, all of your sins. And the more that reality starts to sink in, the more I love Jesus. And His love draws me deeper and deeper into friendship with Him and following Him closer and closer. And word of encouragement, as you do that, guess what else happens? You become a much more loving person toward other people. Your speech and your actions get kinder. You start being less concerned about yourself and what you want and more about other people and how you might be a blessing to their life. So in light of the fact that Jesus is coming, we ought to become more loving people. In addition to that, we ought to become holy people. And this is part and parcel of the first one. The closer you get to Jesus, the more the ugly and sinful parts of you get more repulsive to your soul and so you start doing everything you can by the Spirit's power to shed yourself from them. But knowing the end of the story should motivate us to holiness. Amen? Jesus is coming back. If you had important guests coming to see you, you would probably get a haircut and some new clothes and pick up at least the obvious funk around your house, right? Um, how much more then? Should the reality that King Jesus is coming to take you home motivate you to purge from your heart and your life everything that's displeasing to Him? Lastly, disciple-making people. You know, I beat this drum all the time. It is our mission statement, but it is absolutely mission-critical that we get this. This is the primary way our love for Jesus gets expressed in relationship with other people. This is His calling on our lives. This is the mission which it is your life purpose and mine to execute and fulfill. This is the job of the Christian life and we don't know how long we have to do it. So don't be one of those people who comes to their pastor and asks if their pets will be in heaven with them but has no concern about the people that they live next to. And in the same house with and across the street from, and in the same family with. Amen? Don't do that. 
I don't know if your pet will be in heaven, but I do know that other people are the vital part of your mission and mine. And we know that right now, half the people who have ever lived on planet Earth are alive, and billions of them do not know Jesus or have never even heard the good news of the Gospel that Jesus came to die for their sin, to be raised from the dead, to give them new life. Half the people who have ever lived on this planet are alive right now. And Jesus is calling you and me to reach them with the Gospel and make disciples of them that they might know how to they might show, you might show and tell them how to follow Jesus just like you do. So with that in mind, we must not be napping at our post. Amen? Jesus is coming. So let's advance the mission until He comes. And let's pray. And then let's sing. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You unfold this story in a way that is wilder and more amazing and more surprising than we could ever have imagined. And yet, Father, we know that it will all come true, that this is not just a story, but is the reality that the King of the universe loves His creation and came and died to redeem them from the sin they had fallen into and the death they were headed toward and the hell they deserved. And that having done so, you invite us into the mission of telling people about what you have done. Father, may we be faithful this week and this month, this year, and for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.